We're going to be in 1 Kings uh, 21 tonight, looking at the continued story of Elijah's ministry and how God used him. And a lot, uh, in a lot of ways, tonight's passage focuses in a little bit less on Elijah and more on what's happening uh, in the world around him, particularly with Queen uh, Jezebel and her husband, King Ahab. So even though John prayed, let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, we are grateful for tonight. Uh, we are dependent upon your spirit as we open your word, and we pray that you'll give us hearts that are soft, uh, softened by uh, your word that we might hear and understand and leave here even transformed, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you ever read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus asked questions all the time. Uh, some of those questions showed his remarkable kindness, like whenever he would ask the leper, uh, do you want to be healed? Of course, the answer is yes, you'd want to be healed. Uh, sometimes those questions came in the form of a rebuke. Whenever he was confronted by Nicodemus about his identity, he asked him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things about the Old Testament? And you can kind of hear the rebuke uh, whenever he was speaking to Nicodemus. You can hear Jesus' uh, kindness to the woman caught in adultery whenever all of her accusers stood there to condemn her. And after Jesus uh, challenged them of whoever is without sin to throw the first stone, they all left. And he looked at her and said, woman, where are your accusers? Have they all left? And she said, yes, they have. And he promised her forgiveness of her sin. Jesus' questions reveal a lot about himself, and they also reveal a lot about the human heart. One of the questions that he asks that I think is one of the most haunting of all scripture is when he asks this question to the crowds, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think as we sit here tonight in Live Oak A and as we just sang of the songs in worship, come thou fount of every blessing, it can almost feel as if we hear the, the foolishness of that trade-off. Who would ever who would ever make such a trade to gain anything in this world and yet forfeit their soul? And at the same time, whenever we're in the midst of life and the challenges and the temptations that we experience, when opportunity knocks and temptation is pressing hard, that question is a good one to keep on the forefront of our mind. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We're going to see tonight King Ahab and Jezebel wager their soul for a piece of land a vineyard that they didn't need to plant a garden that they likely would rarely use. And it seemed as if they came up with the perfect crime to cover over what they were about to do to this easy solution. But God is a God of justice who knows all and sees all and ensures that this injustice is not overlooked but will be answered. And so what I want you to see tonight as we dive into these verses is this reality that you and I are challenged to see that Faithfulness and obedience to God's word will always lead to straight and level paths in our lives. Faithfulness and obedience to God's word will always lead to straight and narrow paths in our lives. It doesn't mean that it'll always be easy, and it doesn't mean that we're never going to experience injustice. But at the same time, we'll see that those who take crooked paths will truly suffer the consequences. Let's look at this passage tonight. The first thing I want you to see is the danger of a covetous heart, the danger of a covetous heart. Let me read the first six verses. I know there's a lot tonight, so I'm going to break this up into chunks so I don't read it all in one shot. But notice the danger of a covetous heart in verses one through six. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. 
And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. You can see in Ahab's reaction and his response He has a desire to buy this piece of land that's owned by Naboth. He offers him a trade. I'll give you a better piece of property. He offers him money. And Naboth says, this has been the family's inheritance. I don't want your money. I don't want another piece of property. I'm happy with what I have. No harm, no foul. But we can see the heart of Ahab as he goes home and he gets in his bed and he won't eat any food and he lays down and the the figure is of one who's like turned his face to the wall. He's so upset and he's so depressed at this situation. A little bit of context might be helpful. Jezreel is probably Ahab's second home. This is probably a place that he would go and be like a vacation home to get away from all of the cares and the concerns of leading the kingdom that he has been entrusted to as the king. And you could imagine him going home and as he walks into his house, seeing this vineyard out next to his palace and thinking, wouldn't it be great? If I could just grow a vegetable garden and have fresh fruit and fresh vegetables as he watches every day, Naboth harvesting his grapes and harvesting his vineyard. And every time he would come into his home and every time he would come back to this place of relaxing, how much greater would his vacation be? How much greater would his rest be if he just owned this land where he would be able to partake of the fruit that he could grow of this place? It's almost as though it has so overtaken his heart that his happiness and his soul depend on owning that land. Now, that might sound crazy to you, but if you think about your own heart, as I can think about my own, it's not a far stretch to see how we can tie our identity into something so tightly that we think if I could just obtain this, life would be so much better. I think of all the commandments, the Ten Commandments, probably the Tenth Commandment is the one that we think of as the most benign or the most easily overlooked, which is the one that says, do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servant, ox, donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. And I bet if most of us would look at the commandments, if we wouldn't admit this, we'd probably say, murder, big deal. I can see that one. Adultery, stealing, lying, get it. All of those I can see how, uh, how just destructive they are in life, but covetousness, is it really that big of a deal? And God commands, even in that 10th commandment, not to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And we could add even his vineyard. You see, to covet is more than just a desire. It's an inordinate desire that's mixed with a plan, a scheme, a way of somehow I'm going to obtain this thing that I can't quite have. And I actually think of the more that we can understand what it means to covet, and we can understand the significance of that command, do not covet, we actually will see that the command not to covet actually becomes the link from which all of the other commands hinge on its reality. For instance, when you understand this way, that to covet is an inordinate desire mixed with a plan or a scheme or a way to get what I can obtain, we start to see how all of the commandments hang together. Do not covet your neighbor's spouse. Why? Because that inordinate desire nourished 
time and time and time again can easily lead to committing adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's success. Why? Because the longer you continue to covet and set your desire on your neighbor's success in a way that I have to have what they have can easily lead you into places where you find yourself uh, trying to figure out how can I make a dollar at any cost possible, whether that's a dishonest gain, have truths, or even stealing what doesn't belong to you. Every Ponzi scheme that exists, there's people in jail right now because of the way in which this inordinate desire became hooked in their life of covetousness and has led them to a place of theft, of stealing, and even of all types of heinous crime. Ahab is coveting his neighbor's vineyard. And we're gonna see in a moment, it's a short step from where he walks into his house to actually committing murder so that he can obtain that which isn't his. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't, uh, that we should like stamp out any, any form of desire. It's good. It's good for us to be able to work hard. It's good to sacrifice. It's good to work in a way that God has designed us so that you can try to do better in life, whether that's to increase your education level, whether that's to grow your business, whether that's to, to make more profit, make more money. According to God's ways and God's plans, there's nothing wrong or inappropriate with that kept in check. But when covetous sneaks into our hearts, into this inordinate desire that my life depends on it, we're just one step away from all sorts of danger. For all the hideousness of this story that we're about to read, we're going to see that the turning point, I really believe, is the covetousness of Ahab's heart. Be on your guard against the danger of covetousness. Let's go back to the story. Verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread. And let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I've told you throughout this semester that Ahab himself, and I shouldn't say I've told you, we've read, Ahab himself is one of the most wicked kings in Israel up to this point, and his wife is no better. If the danger of a covetous heart seeps in and we can see that danger notice the danger or the deceitfulness of evil jezebel's like why didn't you come to dinner last night what is going on why are you pouting so much i can i can solve this problem and notice the deceit of evil let me just read the verses verse 8 so she wrote letters in ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with naboth in his city and she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table, at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders, the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the table and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. 
there's a horror within this story. I think it's one of the darker stories within all of Scripture. When you enter into the story and you really kind of see this reality, for all of Naboth's covetousness, isn't it remarkable? Or for all of Ahab's covetousness, it's remarkable the contentment that Naboth expressed. No, I don't need more money. I don't need better lands. I'm actually quite content with what I've got right here. But instead, he set up, falsely accused, and heinously murdered outside of this city. It seems as if Jezebel has, per, has kind of uh, concocted like the perfect crime, the perfect cover-up, so that she and her husband can go and can take over this land and take over this, this place. Jezebel calls for a day of prayer, a day of fasting. It's almost as if, if you think about the evil behind this, for all of the injustice that's about to unfold, she's going to give it a religious veneer. She's going to make it look like this was all under the cover of a religious ceremony. Maybe there was a famine in the land. We don't know. Maybe there was some blight that had happened. But for whatever reason, calling a fast among the whole city, the people would have responded. And she's giving this the, the veneer of religiosity and faithfulness in order to set him up for murder. It's going to be injustice, but at least it'll be a religious injustice. It's going to be an injustice, but at least it will be legal in the eyes of the law setting up two witnesses to falsely accuse him. One witness isn't enough. It takes two within the eyes of the law. And so she has these two men set up to make this false accusation against him. When you read through the story, there's almost like a, there's almost just a, such, a, such a quick description that it's almost as if the narrator of Second King, or First Kings wants us to see how quick this unfolds so that we ourselves are, are kind of taken aback by how ugly this story is. And the question I think at this point we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? I think on the one hand, we have to wrestle with the reality that God's word doesn't sugarcoat the realities that happen in life. Time and time again, we see injustice in the world around us. And the Bible doesn't present some sugarcoated view of the world. If you're even thinking about the truthfulness of God's word, that's even itself an apologetic to think about it. But I want to draw your attention to at least a few applications, a few things to think about, kind of at the midpoint of this story. I'm thankful for uh, a theologian, Dale Ralph Davis, who brings some of these points to light uh, as, as I studied and read through this passage. Here's the first one. Uh, there will be trials in life. As Christians, specifically, as a believer and a follower of Christ, there will come times where you will likely experience injustice for faithfully following Christ. Faithfulness to God is not a guarantee that we will be free from any sort of uh, injustice, that we'll be free from any hardship that comes our way. Uh, we can trust that God is with us in our suffering, but at the same time, that's not a guarantee that it won't come. If you've watched the news at all over the last few years, you'll know that there's a baker in Colorado, his name's Jack Phillips, who's world-renowned for the cakes that he bakes. But as a believer in Christ, he's drawn the line on there are certain types of cakes that he won't bake, that he won't decorate, because he says, for me to use my artistic ability, this isn't just like, you know, mixing up some batter and throwing it in the oven. I mean, this is taking his artistic ability and his creative genius and putting it to bear on his specific creations. And he's been set up time and time again by people who are asking him to bake and to design things that will violate his Christian conscience. And he's politely and respectfully said, I just can't do that as a follower of Christ, but I can point you to a baker who will. 
and he's watched his life get strung through the courts for the last almost eight, 10 years as, uh, as lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit has come his way. And it finally has taken the Supreme Court to stand up for him and for his rights as a follower of Christ that yes, he does have constitutional religious protection, but that doesn't account for the years that have taken away of fighting these battles and the legal fees that have come of standing up for his faith and Christ. Trials in life will come and even specifically trials that come for being a follower of Christ. I think another thing that we can see in this story is that for all of the ways in which this focus of this story leads us to see the sin of, of Ahab and Jezebel, we can actually also see that Naboth himself, well, doesn't he in some ways prefigure and point us to Christ? Notice the similarities. Here's Naboth, faithful, innocent, seeking to do what God has called him to do, falsely accused, put on a sham trial, brought with two witnesses to make up a charge against him, and taken outside the city gates where he's stoned and killed. Yes, Christ was crucified, but he was crucified outside the city gates. If anything we can see in this story is that Jesus, the Savior, comes and he walks in Naboth's shoes. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused and even to the point of even standing for his death. But the third thing I think we can see as we think about the the significance of this story, and this is truly something that I think is worth you reflecting on and something that I need to reflect on as well, is that there will come a time in your life, there will come a time in your life where you are going to face the challenge of standing up for the sake of justice for somebody who you know who has either been falsely accused or has been uh, put in a difficult situation and it's going to put you in a challenging situation in order to speak the truth of what's happening in that situation. I've seen it time and time again. And often where the difficulty comes is when you feel as though your reputation might be on the line or you might have to cash in some chips that might do damage to your reputation in order to stand up for the truth of justice. You have to read this story and ask yourself, where were the people in this city? Who are these leaders and elders that reads this letter from Jezebel and says, you know what? We're going to do what she asked us to do. We're going to falsely accuse him and we're going to put him on trial and we're going to go out and we're going to stone him to death when we really know he's innocent. Why didn't anybody stand up for Naboth? because they were afraid of what was going to come to them if they stood up for what they know to be the truth. This theologian that I just quoted a moment ago said, injustice flourishes. Injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but by weakness. Injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but by weakness, not merely from a lack of goodness, but from a lack of guts. Where were the people willing to stand up? They were quiet and they were silent. And notice how this part of the story concludes in verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. It seems like it is the perfect crime. The innocent parties are dead. The political leaders are scared and everything is going 
according to plan. But notice that this isn't the end of the story. God himself is not fooled. While the political leaders might be silent and while it might seem like the innocent parties have all been done away with, God himself sees and knows and is aware. And if anything we see in this story is that the God of justice really does exist and he really does care and he really does come to the defense of his people. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. So verse 20, Elijah comes to the scene. In verse 20, Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. God is not blind. He is not unaware of what's happened, but he has truly come in response for justice of what's happened to Naboth. Justice is one of those words that we get thrown around a lot in our, in our day. Uh, justice is one of those desires that we have to see uh, what's what's been broken, finally fixed. And there's a true statement that we often will hear when somebody has been killed and we hear a cry for justice that the question often comes, well, justice doesn't bring them back from the dead. And justice doesn't bring back and make them whole. Justice doesn't undo the crime that's been committed. And that's true. And I think the question that we often will wrestle as we think through this is, does God show up too late? Where was God while Naboth was being stoned? Why didn't God show up sooner? And those are real difficult questions that we're forced to grapple with. But what I think we can truly walk away from this story with and with a confident assurance is this reality that the justice that we long for in this life, whenever we see injustice like this committed, can truly only be solved by the work of God himself. The justice that we desire, more than just for a person to go to prison, (laughs) or more than a person to just pay a fine, is that truly one day God will set all that's been evil. He will make it right. He will address it and he will deal with it according to the ways that only God can do. Some of you in this room have suffered evil at the hands of others. It's not just that we've committed sin and we feel the guilt of our sin. Some of us bear the consequences of the shame of other people's sin against us. And that might be a question that you've asked yourself, where was God in that moment? What I want you to see in this story is that while God's timing is not the same as our timing, and while God doesn't show up according to the ways that we would hope that he would show up according to his time, God's timing is perfect and he does execute justice in the way that only he can do that truly is good and faithful and true. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, 
uh, John is taken on this, this tour of heaven, if you will, and history is unfolding before him. And in chapter 6, verse 9, he's given a vision, and it's an interesting one, that he says, I saw under the altar... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. He saw those who had been killed innocently for their faith in Christ. And the souls of those who are in God's presence, notice where they are, they're in God's presence and they're beneath the altar of God where the sacrifice and atonement for sin was made, are crying out to God, how long before you judge and avenge? Their cry for justice carries on from earth, even into heaven, in God's presence. And God's response to them in that moment was, wait a little longer. In other words, my timing will come according to my perfect plan. But in the meantime, he gives them a white robe and tells them to rest a little longer. The judgment and the justice of God is perfect, it's complete, and it will unfold in his perfect time. There is no perfect crime that escapes the vision and the wisdom of God himself. But as typical, there's more to the story. Ahab himself responds to Naboth's, or to to Elijah's confrontation. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, remember, this is God's word coming to Elijah. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. I am all the time blown away by the kindness and the mercy of God throughout his word. That if Ahab, the most wicked king of all of Israel, who humbles himself in this moment, receives a measure of mercy from God himself, how much more hope is there than for all of us as we think about our own sin and our own judgment? If, if Naboth's death cries out for justice, well, Ahab's repentance shows us a measure of God's mercy and patience. Several years ago after RUF, I remember sitting outside. We're outside house chambers Uh, And one of the students were talking about one of the current events that was going on in that time. There's a man who had been on trial. His uh, his his trial was in the national news for a heinous crime that he had committed. And she said to me, she goes, do you think God would really forgive him? Do you think God would really forgive him for what he did? Because his crime seems so just hideous. And I told her, I said, the only thing that makes sense to me, and this is where we have to understand the gospel, is if we really understand what we mean when we say that Christ's sacrifice has been applied to us and that he has taken on the guilt of his people so that justice can be satisfied for anybody whose faith is truly in Christ, for anybody's heart that's been truly transformed and receives that grace, 
the justice that he deserves, the justice that you and I deserve, has been poured out on Christ himself. So that one day, as those souls in Revelation are crying out for justice, they see Christ's sacrifice and realize justice has been served. Christ has stood in our place and on all those who willingly, truly repent of their sin and trust in him so that God's mercy might be known and might be seen. But I actually don't think in this story Ahab's repentance is genuine. I think he's remorseful. I don't think he's repentant. I think he got caught, but I don't think his sorrow is lasting. Because it's in the very next chapter, Ahab is unceremoniously killed in battle, and the dogs lick up the blood from the place where he was slain. God's justice is real, it's true, and it comes to bear. And so for you and I, what are we called to do in response to a story like that? Well, it's to wrestle with these twin realities. If Naboth's death requires justice, and if in Ahab's repentance we see a measure of mercy, well, then you and I are called in this moment then to see that truly those who follow hard after Christ and who seek to live faithfully and obediently truly can see that he does lay straight paths for our feet, clear ways for us to go, and to lay hold of his patience and his mercy even now because the God of mercy calls us to come to him in true repentance and humility and to embrace Christ, even as we sit here tonight. So let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do see, even in this story and in the world around us, so often the horrors of sin and the horrors of evil. And God, if we confess that truly in our own lives, that if we were to be judged according to our sin, that you would be just and righteous and bringing condemnation upon us. Father, we're so grateful for the mercy that you show us through the work of Christ. And God, I pray that even as we think about the mercy that you offer to your people tonight, that you will soften our hearts and enable us to truly reach out to him in faith and trust and in belief. And so turn our hearts towards you. And we pray that you'll give us peace, we ask in Christ's name.